Almighty God, you've promised that your word which goes forth from your mouth will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire and succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. My friends, you cannot read the Gospels without noticing that wherever Jesus Christ is present, strange things happen. Supernatural things occur. For example, when Jesus attends a funeral, dead people come to life. When Jesus visits the sick, the sick are healed, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And when Jesus is with a multitude of people in the wilderness, and it's time to eat, and there's little or no food, he takes into his hands what little food there is, he gives thanks, and suddenly there's more than enough for everyone. There are baskets full of leftovers. My friends, when Jesus attends a baptism, baptism is never the same. It is forever changed. The first Sunday after the Epiphany is always the baptism of our Lord. And consider this. We have four Gospels, and in only two of them do we read of the birth of our Savior, but in all four Gospels, we read of his baptism. It's that important. Now, we don't celebrate his baptism the way we celebrate his birth, but perhaps we should, because baptism affects you personally and directly. I mean, his birth affects you indirectly, but baptism directly affects you. And what he does to it is amazing. Roman numeral one in your outline in the back of your bulletin, Jesus transforms baptism. He transforms the baptism of John. He makes baptism into something it never was previously. John says in our gospel reading, I baptize you with water, but one coming after me, mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus transforms baptism, number one. Letter A, and this is a quote from a German theologian about 100 years ago, uh, Adolf Schlatter. Uh, in the preaching of John, water and spirit are still separated. Water and spirit are still far apart, but they will not stay separated. They come together in the work of Jesus. When Jesus steps into the water, suddenly there's more than simple water involved here. The Spirit is also present, and that's true not only for the baptism of Jesus, but for your baptism as well. And this is how Peter put it in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit is a promise that's attached to baptism. 
Jesus' baptism is not any less than John's. The baptism of Jesus includes the water of John's baptism, but it also includes much more. Letter B, another quote from an English theologian. The great event which changed a Johannine baptism, or John's baptism, into Christian baptism was the baptism of Jesus. You see, just as the presence of Jesus transforms a funeral into a raising of the dead, and just as the presence of Jesus on a hospital call results in the healing of the sick, his mere presence in baptism transforms baptism. And the baptism of Jesus, we might well say, and I think should say, is the very first Christian baptism. It's Trinitarian. You, you, you have uh, the first person of the Trinity, the Father, speaking. You have the second person of the Trinity, the Son, in the water. You have the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, descending upon Jesus. This is the beginning of our Christian baptism. And, and your baptism is what it is because of Christ's presence in the Jordan River. Jesus is as present in your baptism as he was in his own. Roman numeral two, Jesus' baptism transforms us. It transforms us. Letter A, the world makes claims on you. The world tells you what you ought to believe and how you ought to think. But in baptism, God claims you as his own. The world, for example, insists that you belong to yourself. You are a self-defining individual. You can be whomever you want. The world insists that your identity is wrapped up in your occupation or that you belong to your employer in some sense. The world insists that you belong to your family and that your first loyalty is to family. The world insists that you belong to your school, that you belong to your government, or that you belong to your country. As Christians, we reject all these claims of ownership. We belong to God. Your life is about God's purposes, not your own. And through baptism, you no longer live to yourself, but you live to and for and with God. Number one, baptism equals the gift of the Spirit. Remember the, the passage from uh, Acts 2, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit is yours. It's a guarantee. And number two, the gift of the Spirit equals sonship. That's what it's doing in this context. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and the voice from heaven says, this is my Son. That's what baptism is all about. It's about being a child of God. And Paul states this so clearly in Galatians 3, and I cite that in your, in your outline. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus because, and this is what, what follows, and it's key, because all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You see, faith is always the result of God's activity. It's not that you believe first and then, and then God acts. No, God acts and that creates faith in your heart. In baptism, 
He has clothed you with Christ. He's given you his spirit. That enables you to believe that you are now God's child. That's your identity. God is your real father, and the church is your eternal family. Letter B, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's verse 16 of your gospel reading. And number one, fire in the scripture is always associated with judgment slash purification. Because they're just two sides of the same coin. Judgment slash purification. And, and I cite 1 Peter 1, 7, which, which says simply this, that your faith is tested by fire, by fiery trials. In much the same way, Gold is tested and purified by fire. The impurities are removed by the heat so that your faith is made more pure. It's made more Christ-centered through trial. You learn to despair of yourself and your own ability and to trust in the one who has all ability. That's what trials do for us. They purify our faith. And Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, we should expect this fire of purification. It's part of God's plan for each one of us. And number two, baptism causes the world, the flesh, and the devil to oppose us. To oppose us. Reverend Dan May, a former president of our Indiana district, said, when we baptize a child, we don't do him any favors. Not in a worldly sense. I mean, in a spiritual sense, absolutely. We're doing the greatest favor of all, or God is. But in a worldly sense, no. Luther said, when a man is baptized, the hounds of hell are released against him. Jesus said, if the world hates you, please know that it hated me first. In the world you'll have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Number three, the same spirit indwelling both John and Jesus dwells in you. Now think about that. John is in prison for his preaching, preaching a baptism of repentance even to Herod. That will get him beheaded. Jesus will be crucified. And the spirit that got them in trouble lives in you so that you will, at the appropriate time, stand up and speak truth to power or speak truth to family. You know, both are powerful in our hearts and our minds. The same spirit that got them in trouble lives in you. Number four, at best we experience opposition, at worst martyrdom. At best we experience opposition, at worst martyrdom. I cite Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The enemies of a man will be the members of his own household. And Jesus said, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. My friends, some things are just more important than family. We have to admit that. And family needs that reality, that truth as well. I cite 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says, for all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, my friends, Jesus, by his presence in the Jordan River, he transforms baptism for all of us. He transforms it into a spiritual reality that the world opposes. And in transforming baptism, Jesus has transformed you and I who have been baptized. He has set us on a different path than the world is treading. He sets us at odds with the world. Mary Eberstadt wrote a book two or three years ago entitled, It's Dangerous to Believe. In it, she chronicles example after example after example of Christian people denied employment, denied tenure in academia, fired from their employment, passed over for promotion, and on and on, because they held biblical beliefs about marriage or about creation. It's just that simple. Now, on a different note, I heard, I think all of us, many of us heard of a gay woman at Ron Colley High School losing her job this past summer. At least she's put on administrative leave with pay. And that's very sad. She is a guidance counselor at Ron Colley, which is a Roman Catholic high school in Indy. She was placed on administrative leave with pay when it was learned that she was married to another woman. Now, I'm assuming that she knew that gay marriage not only violates scriptural standards, but Roman Catholic teaching as well. And it also violated her contract. And yet, she seeks reinstatement as a guidance counselor, not with IPS, but at Roncalli. And I feel for her. I don't want to see her lose her job. But you think about it. What she's asking of her church and what she's asking of all of us is that we must change our beliefs in order to accommodate hers. Now, behavior is one thing, but beliefs are another. We must always behave in a way that, so that we treat people with love and respect, no matter who they are or what they believe. But no one should expect us to depart from the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. That is not an option for us. But that is the pressure that the world places upon us today. That's the challenge that you and I face as children of God. And all of us face this challenge. We all do. As Paul said, all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Water is necessary for life. It's a gift from God. We can't live without it. But it's also dangerous. The same is true of baptism. When we baptize someone, we are putting him or her at risk. We're setting him or her in opposition 
to the world, and the world is a dangerous place. So Roman numeral three, is Jesus worth the risk? Is baptism worth the risk? The letter A, what we do is the result of who we are, or whose we are. You could, both are true. And, and I cite John 10, 27, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. We're his sheep. We can do no other but faithfully follow. And truth be known, that's what the world needs us to do. If we don't, who will? And let it be, those who oppose you, always remember this, those who oppose you did not die for you, but Jesus did. Those who oppose you are not your savior. They will not deliver you from sin, death, and the devil. And it brings to my mind the scene in John chapter 6 where Jesus is speaking to a, a multitude of his disciples. He has quite a large following in John chapter 6. And he lays it on the line for them as disciples. He said, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. That true bread from heaven, referring to himself, gives life to the world. I am the living bread, Jesus said, that came down, the true bread. That a man may eat of me and never die. Now with this, we read, that many of his disciples were offended. And they left. We don't know if they ever came back. But they departed from him. And only the 12 remained. And that had to be a low moment for our Lord. It had to be a, 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 a tragic, sad moment for the disciples who were left, the 12. And, and so Jesus turned to them and he asked them, will you also go away? And, and Peter speaking for all of them. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As Jesus himself said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. In Jesus' name, amen.